pigs and COVID-19. We've been hearing about the unfortunate shutdown of a number of pork packing and processing plants over these past few weeks, but pigs are playing another role in the current pandemic as well, a rather unexpected role at that. Welcome to Feedstuffs in Focus, our podcast taking a deeper look at the big issues in the livestock, poultry, grain, and feed industries. I'm your host, Andy Vance. Thanks for joining us. This episode of Feedstuffs in Focus is sponsored by United Animal Health, a leader in animal health and nutrition. You can learn more about United Animal Health and how they are working to advance animal science globally by visiting their website, unitedanh.com. In this episode, Feedstuffs editor Sarah Muirhead talks with Matt Wheeler, a professor of animal science at the University of Illinois, about the role pigs and his team of researchers are playing in an experiment that could save many lives. Wheeler, who has built extensive expertise in testing life-saving medical devices in the animal population, was called upon last month to test a new emergency ventilator designed to save lives of COVID-19 patients. With more on the story... Here's Sarah. Back in March, just a couple days after Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker issued his stay-at-home order, you got a call seeking your expertise. Walk us through what that call was all about and what your initial thinking was. It was a Sunday morning, and I uh, don't often check my email over the weekend, but I did. And there was a request from some of my colleagues in the College of Engineering and Carl Hospital Physicians and uh, some folks involved with a couple companies here, and they asked if I would be interested on in joining a call at 10.30 in the morning to talk about a prototype device that they had developed, a prototype ventilator, if I would be interested in helping them, you know, do some uh, initial animal testing on that. I responded to the email and said, yes, I'd be interested in talking to them about it and got on the call with about 20 other people. And basically we talked about what they'd done and they'd been working about a week at that point and they were ready to, to begin thinking about the next step, which was going from bench testing to preclinical animal testing, and then ultimately the goal to go on to humans. We chatted a little bit about what they wanted, and I thought about what we could potentially do. And when the call ended, I called my farm manager, Jonathan Mosley, at the Imported Swine Research Lab here on campus. And whenever I think about a project, have an idea, I always call Jonathan first because he's the he's kind of my barometer of whether we can actually make it happen because it all comes back down to taking care of the animals and the guys that are in the barns with them and you know could we actually do this in a case where we were supposed to shelter at home and so Jonathan said yes I think we can do it and so it began. Is this your background? Have you done these kind of experiments before this kind of research before or why would you be top of mind when when they were thinking about you know having to to do some animal work like this? Yeah, I was hired here at the university in the late 80s when the Chinese Meishan pigs were brought in. And the facility where they were housed was known as the Physiology Research Lab, which had a long history, many, many decades of doing biological reproductive work, nutrition work. Basically, I got started there. And as a, a developmental biologist, reproductive biologist by training, we began our work to improve pigs. And as time went along, we were asked if we could help develop models for regenerative medicine, bone regeneration, to test different kinds of medical devices in animals. And so over the last probably 15 years, we've done you know quite a bit of that work with colleagues in engineering here and at Carl Hospital in Urbana, and with a number of colleagues at places like Michigan and Wisconsin and um, Northwestern 
uh, in Georgia Tech. So we've had quite a bit of experience in that arena, and we've tested devices for bone and cartilage regeneration in, in the face and in the jaw. We worked on tracheal stents for infants to treat a disease known as tracheomalacia, which is a probably responsible for about 80% of SIDS deaths in infants. So we worked on that project. We worked on spinal fusion. We worked on a number of, of things and have a number of uh, papers. And I've developed a reputation in that arena using animals, as a, especially pigs, as a model to test these devices. So pigs really are a big part of biomedical research that goes on? Pigs have actually become the, probably, other than the mouse, the, the number one non-primate model for medical research. Again, as we've shifted away from using primates uh, for many years, we use chimpanzees and rhesus monkeys. And as the scientific community has, has shifted away from that, the pig has actually become more and more the go-to model because the digestive system, the, the heart, uh, lungs are very similar in size and physiology to humans. So, you know, for example, a 200 to 250 pound pig has the same heart, lungs, and kidney size as about a 70 kilogram or 150 pound human. So it's a really good model for that. And and many of the reagents we use in, in humans, um, we can use, um, you know, in, in pigs, antibodies to look at specific proteins. Insulin is derived from pigs. We use pig heart valves for human cardiac therapy. And so there's a lot of uses uh, of the pig besides for breakfast. <laughs> right. So tell us about this ventilator um, and what this, you know, this call for some testing was all about. It's an emergency ventilator and what, what all goes into it? How does it work? It was designed by the engineers and this is a fantastic group of people to work with. Bill King, who was the leader of the project from mechanical engineering, he uh, basically has talked about it as our Apollo 13 moment, where somewhere between 40 and 50 people, depending on the day, were working on this device basically 24-7 for a period of about 19 days. The device is designed as a emergency ventilator, so it's the ventilators that you hear talked about that GM and different companies are making have a lot of electronics and a lot of digital readouts. This is a very simple device that's powered off of oxygen or an oxygen mix can be hooked up directly to the gas source in a, in a hospital or in a in an ambulance it only has one moving part a diaphragm that allows inspiration and expiration of the patient it's completely driven by gas there's no electronics there's really no moving parts other than that one diaphragm and it's pretty pretty simple it's pretty robust it's you know, by now it's run millions and millions of cycles uh, on the bench and as well as animal testing. And it's it's very robust and very durable. It's lightweight. It can be rapidly manufactured. You know, discussions about getting up to 100,000 per day certainly is not out of the realm of possibility. What all went into the animal testing part of it? After about two weeks of development, prototyping, and bench testing, when we had our initial discussion, and that testing was all going on while we were formulating the animal studies, and all of our animal studies here at the university are done under the purview of the Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee. So we had to write a protocol to them, telling them what we wanted to do and how it was going to be done and who was going to be involved in the conducting of the project, the number of animals, how they were going to be treated, 
And that was all presented to a group of lay people, scientists, colleagues here, other professors on campus, veterinarians, and the institutional veterinarian. And after several days, and they, they worked at really light speed to get this approved because it was such a critical project, we got an approval about four days after we submitted the protocol. And then we started the testing that, so I got the call on Sunday and we started the animal testing on Friday. Oh, wow. That was quick. That was a very so quick it, turnaround, it was, I would imagine. It was extremely quick. I mean, it, it's, everybody was very motivated and worked really hard and diligently and got this all done. So I applaud all the people involved from the, from the iCook and from the folks at the Office of the Vice Chancellor for Research. They really worked hard to help us. So is the research done now or is there a next step? Where's that at? Basically, we did three studies. We did a basically a short-term three-hour study to look at, to see if the device would work in an animal. Would, could it ventilate the animal? Could it oxygenate the animal? And, you know, what, basically, would it, would it work as a, as, a ventil, as a ventilator? And during that three-hour test, we were convinced that, yes, it would ventilate the animal, oxygenate the animal, which is part of it. It was what a ventilator does, and then take away carbon dioxide in the expiration. After we were sure that it was going to work, we began a 24-hour study to look at durability of the device, you know, because you don't want to use it as a, basically it was an emergency ventilator. So if you didn't have a, a normal ventilator available, you could put a patient on this from somewhere between 24 and 48 hours, but you wanted to be sure that it would, that it would function properly that whole time. So we did a long-term test over Saturday and Sunday and used five animals in that study. And for the animal study, all the animals were sedated, just like a, a patient would be that's on a ventilator. We had a veterinary staff that was there throughout the whole time, along with my staff, monitoring the animals and being sure that they were healthy and safe and all the normal parameters, their heart rate, their respiration rate, their temperature, and all those things were in, within normal parameters. And after the 24-hour test, you know, we determined that the ventilator was, we, we had a lot of test equipment because we wanted to look at things like flow rate and pressure and all that thing. And, and just the volume of test equipment and the volume of tubing hoses that the oxygen had to pass through really wasn't performing the way we'd like. And so after lots of sleepless nights and, and talking about it, we decided the final test would, you know, we wanted to see if you hooked it directly up to the patient like you would. Uh, to the pig like you would to the patient, just the endotracheal tube and the ventilator and the oxygen, would it function properly? And when we did that and removed all the test equipment, the ventilator worked like a charm. I mean, it it oxygenated. You could adjust the, the valve so that the pH level, the acid level, or the base level in the blood could be adjusted depending on how fast the patient breathed. Because again, these are going to be used in patients that have potentially labored breathing and difficulty breathing. So you have to be able to adjust it. And and once we hooked the ventilator directly to the pig, it worked like it worked like a champion. Is there further testing or are you I'm, so I'm just... so so at this point the whole goal of this project was to develop this prototype, do the initial testing and pass that on to potential manufacturers that would make the ventilator because it's it's 3D printed. And so you need companies that have that you know capability to make a lot of units fairly quickly. And so the team decided that instead of pursuing further development here at the university, it needed to be moved on to a bigger group that could could actually bring it to the bring it to the clinic. And so 
that's why we we actually ended the project after 19 days. There have been last time I checked about 50 companies that the university and the team decided we we're going to give the technology away. So it's somebody, some company that wants to access the the computer designs, the parts list, all the testing, the the user manual, all the animal data needs to sign a non-exclusive royalty free license with the university and then all that material will be transferred to the company and the company can take it from there and so we decided that we really weren't in the business to getting fda approval for these things and so the next step is for those companies and there have been companies from as far away as uh, argentina and india and you know south korea around the world that have taken licenses so for now, we're we're done with testing. Although we could be reactivated, um, you know, really at any time if the need arises. The team is is still here, and we're all sheltered at home. But we're we're ready to do what else needs to be done. And so, if one of these companies came to us and said, "Hey, we'd like you to do some more more testing for us," um, we would be ready to do that. From a personal standpoint, it must be really rewarding to to assist in a project like this that you know know that could possibly save countless lives? You know, I've been asked that question a lot. And, you know, when I, I went into agriculture about 40 years ago, and when I signed up, and I tell my students this all the time, when I signed up to do that, I signed up to to help people, to feed people, to do the best we could to move agricultural sciences along. And And I think a lot of the public doesn't realize that ag is so much more than being in the field or milking a cow or or gathering eggs. It's it's a, It's a big enterprise with a lot of technology that can be brought to bear on on society's problems. So when we had the opportunity to take our skill set, and I talked to each one of my students and postdocs and staff scientists, and you know, I, I said, and this is this is an all volunteer operation. If you guys are interested in being involved, but if you're concerned because you know you can't really social distance when when you're doing tests like this, and so we had about a dozen people in a room. Um, I kind of called them like the liken them to the Smurf people. I mean, we all had blue hats and gowns and gloves and, you know, did the best we could to protect everybody. But these kinds of things uh, require personnel and, and they rose to the challenge and I'm extremely proud of their efforts. And, uh, you know, I told them, I said, if it helps one person, we've done our job, you know, and, and I say that all the time to my undergrads. If you feed one person in ag, you've done your job. And hopefully it'll help a lot more people than that. What a great story. We thank you so much for taking time and and sharing it with us and for everything that you're doing and in developing and testing these new products. So thank you so much, Matt. It's an incredible reminder of just how essential the agriculture industry is to our society. Thanks to Sarah Muirhead and to Professor Matt Wheeler of the University of Illinois for sharing his team's efforts to save lives. And thanks again to United Animal Health, a leader in animal health and nutrition, for sponsoring today's episode. You can learn more about United Animal Health and how they are working to advance animal science worldwide by visiting their website, unitedanh.com. And you'll find more in-depth reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic in the pages of Feedstuffs. And for the latest updates, you can subscribe to the Feedstuffs daily e-newsletter at feedstuffs.com. I'm Andy Vance, and you've been listening to Feedstuffs in Focus. If you want to hear more conversations about some of the big issues affecting the livestock, poultry, grain, and feed industries, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple and Google Podcasts, or you can always come back to our website, feedstuffs.com, for future episodes. 
Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, have a great day, and thanks for listening.